What do you believe about God? I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I really <laughs> hope that there is a God. And sometimes I really feel like there is. Cautiously optimistic is a great way to word it. Um, I'm sure that something exists, but I'm not sure what that is exactly. I'm completely agnostic, um, <laughs> so I really have no idea. And I think, like, it's just even if a God were to exist, he's so beyond my understanding that it's just too much to think about, and I just try not to think about it too often. Um, but yeah, I used to be a complete atheist and not believe the existence of a God at all, but because um, I found it illogical or something, but then I realized it's just as illogical to believe not believe in um, because there's just no way of knowing. It's just beyond human understanding. Well, it's really good to see you here this morning. How about this heat wave we've got going on? Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier to come and get out of bed on a Sunday morning when it's uh, temperatures like this. Well, we're in the second in this series of room for doubt. And if you're a guest with us today, we are really glad that you've joined us. If you're worshiping with us online, we're really glad you've joined us as well. And this, this topic today is simply the question, how can we know or how can we be sure that God actually exists? Now, I got to tell you, this subject matter is far too broad and far too deep for just a single message. I mean, this is, this is the stuff that takes time and time and time to go through. So what I hope we'll do today is simply what your appetite or, or motivate you to say, I got to do some study on my own. I've got to do some digging about where we're going. Astronomer Carl Sagan wrote this. He said, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. He made absolutely no provision for the possibility that God might exist. More recently, biologist Richard Dawkins shared this view. The factual premise of religion, the, the God hypothesis, is untenable. God almost certainly does not exist. Now, some of you in here this morning might find yourself more aligned with the Sagan-Dawkins camp. Others of you in the room are convinced that God exists. Is it possible to know one way or the other? Can we know for sure if God exists? Our culture has changed a whole lot in my lifetime. When I was a kid growing up in southern Indiana in my small town of Huntingburg, I, I think the vast majority of people believed in the God of the Bible. Even if they didn't go to church, they believed God existed. Today, however, skepticism is much more evident in people's search for faith. And that skepticism has caused us who believe to explore the evidence of our faith so we know why we believe what we believe. I've got to tell you that what Peter wrote in his letter to the ancient church has far more significance to me today than ever before in my ministry. Peter wrote this. In chapter 3, he says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Did you catch that? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. What incredible advice. Peter, writing 2,000 years ago, said, you got to know why you believe what you believe. you got to be able to answer those questions. But you need to answer them with gentleness and respect, not with some kind of guard up. 
gentleness and respect. I think we ought to know what the evidence says. Uh, folks, I am not interested in a hand-me-down faith, a blind faith, or buy a spiritual lottery ticket and hope for the best kind of faith. I, I, I want to I see what evidence is there. I want to know what it is that draws us to God. You see, there is too much at stake for guesswork. Eternal life hangs in the balance of what we decide. Our choice matters. Have you ever seen this bumper sticker? It reads like this. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. You ever seen that? Now, if you're a true believer, that, that might be sufficient for you. But such bumper sticker theology is pretty offensive to those who are genuinely searching. I'm not real keen on that kind of bumper sticker theology. You see, if you're seeking the truth about God, chances are you got major questions about the Bible. So just because you say the Bible says, well, that doesn't mean anything to anybody who is searching for the truth. If I ask an unbeliever why he's rejected God, and that unbeliever's answer to me is, well, Richard Dawkins said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, it doesn't settle it for me. That, that does nothing for me. As a matter of fact, that's a bit offensive to me. Am I suggesting that we shouldn't use Scripture in our search for truth and in our room for doubt? Certainly not. But the Bible cannot be one's sole or even main resource in defending our faith to someone who does not believe. You see, if somebody handed me a copy of the Quran or the writings of Confucius or the Hindu Sanskrit Vedas and said, Here, read this and it will answer all your questions and prove that this is the ultimate truth. I'm not going to be convinced. I'm going to need a lot of empirical truth to support such claims. I will not take that at face value. And the person that you talk to, if you send, hand them a Bible and say, Here, read this and it will explain everything. They won't take that at face value. So, where do we begin in our search for evidence about the existence of God? Well, let's begin with something small. Let's start with the universe, okay? What does the universe tell us about God? Well, cosmology is the study of the origin, structure, and development of the physical universe. The cosmos. Is there a cosmological argument that points one way or the other regarding the existence of God. I believe there is. Dr. William Lane Craig and his ministry, Reasonable Faith, created a great video on the subject, on this cosmological argument. The video can explain it far better than I can. It's a little bit longer than a lot of the videos we watch. It's about four minutes, but it's a good video. So take a peek at this cosmological argument. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. 
And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Now, if you're thinking, boy, that went by real fast, I'd like to see that again, go to reasonablefaith.org. They have that video and several others that really deal in a very great way with these questions about the existence of God. So let's just take a quick review of what we saw in the video. First of all is the premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't just accidentally or randomly pop into existence. Uh, folks, the whole science itself, all of science itself operates on the principle that every event requires a cause. The other evening, um, I was having 
uh, a really sweet talk with uh, my eight-year-old granddaughter, Addie, and she looked at me and she asked me the question. She said, Da, if God made everything, then who made God? Good question. Tough question. My folks tell me that I asked the same question when I was about that age. As a matter of fact, who among us has not asked the question, who made God? But I've learned through the years that this question is a misunderstanding of the argument itself. The argument does not claim that everything needs a cause. It only says that everything that has a beginning needs a cause. At some point, folks, at some point, there must be an uncaused cause. Something or someone that has, without a beginning or an end, brought everything else that exists in to existence. God claims to be without beginning or end. In my estimation, he is the best answer for that question of the uncaused cause. And you say, well, I'm not sure about that. I, I get that. But if not God, then what? Or who? There has to be something there that was not created that created everything else. Okay, here's the second thing that we, we saw. The universe had a beginning. It came into existence. Nearly the entire scientific community acknowledges this fact, that the universe came into existence. We saw that in the video. Cosmologists refer to it as the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking, popular physicist and atheist, sums it up this way. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Thus... The conclusion, since whatever begins to exist has a cause, and since the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. Now, the Christian faith credits God as the creator. I believe this morning that God is that creator. Even in the creation narrative in Genesis, however, we are not provided with the details of how God accomplished that. So, whether God used a, an explosion like the Big Bang or whether God used something totally different in the creation process, the point remains there was a beginning, and if not God, then who or what uncaused cause started us on this journey down the road? But that's not all that the universe teaches us. Far more compelling to me is what we've learned about the operation of the universe. Now, before the days of digital tuning, many of you in this room will not have a clue as to what I'm about to tell you. But, but in, in the days of black and white televisions and old-style FM radios, you had two knobs. You had a knob that you clicked to get to the channel or the station, and then you had another knob that was called fine-tuning. Anybody remember the fine-tuning knobs? And so you would turn these knobs ever so carefully, and it was designed to bring in the signal stronger than ever before. Never worked, but we always tried using the fine-tuning knob to get the signal better. What I want you to know this morning is that the universe operates on a very finely, precisely tuned set of laws. I mean, it is just amazing. Physicist Dr. Robin Collins describes the complexity of the universe in this very simple story, and it goes something like this. 
Imagine what astronauts would think if they landed on Mars and found a biosphere with a control panel where the dials for the environment were set just right for life. The oxygen ratio is perfect. The temperature is 70 degrees. The humidity is 50%. There's a system for replenishing the air, producing food, generating energy, and disposing of waste. Each dial has a huge range of possible settings. And if only one of those settings were out of order, the whole environment would be haywire, making life inside the biosphere impossible. If the astronauts discovered that, what would they conclude? I think it's safe to say that the astronauts would conclude that there was somebody who designed the biosphere, someone who created and built the, the, the biosphere with great, with great care, and then set the dials perfectly so life could exist. In the last half century, Scientists have discovered that just about everything regarding the universe's basic structure balances on a razor's edge for life. The dials have been set far too precisely and perfectly to have been a random accident. For instance, the process by which carbon and oxygen are produced in stars makes life possible. You change that by only 1% in the nuclear force, and it would have as much as a thousand-fold impact on how stars create oxygen and carbon, making life impossible. Here's another thought. Imagine a massive ruler or tape measure that, that spans the universe from one edge of the universe to the other edge of the universe, and it is marked off just like our rulers and tape measures in one-inch increments. Okay? Got it? And let's say that this, this measuring tool represents the strength value of the force of gravity. Just gravity, nothing else, just gravity. And let's say that on this ruler that stretches across the entire universe, that the strength value of gravity is somewhere in the middle. Doesn't matter where we put it, we're just going to put it somewhere in the middle. Are, are, are you ready for this? If we change the strength value of gravity by the equivalent of just one inch on that ruler that spans the universe. In either direction, just one inch, gravity would change by one billion times, making life as we know it impossible. The scientists would, would state it like this. If the force of gravity were to change by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 life would be impossible. I don't know what kind of a number that is, but I can tell you this, that is finely, finely tuned. And that's just the force of gravity, folks. That doesn't include the other basic universe forces like the nuclear force or the electromagnetic force or the others that are also perfectly balanced together. You throw any one of them out of whack and it throws everything out of whack. It would seem, wouldn't it, that someone designed as well as created just such a universe and set the fine-tuning dials perfectly so that life could exist. Now, if the universe operates under such incredibly strict natural laws, isn't it inconceivable to think that there is no natural law creator himself? I agree with the psalmist in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
Now you may be thinking, that's a little bit too heavy. I, I, can, can, you, can you bring this down out of the universe? Sure. Let's take a look at the red cockaded woodpecker. Small enough for you now? All right. This is an incredibly marvelous bird. On each leg, there are four separate toes or talons that dig into the tree upon which it is chiseling out a home. Now, its primary predator is the rat snake. So what's this woodpecker do? Below the home that it drills in the tree, it will drill several other holes that allow the tree sap to leak out and to flow down the tree, keeping the rat snake from being able to climb up and reach the hole. The woodpecker drills, are you ready for this, up to 500 times per minute. That is eight strikes per second. And that's just beyond my ability to comprehend. The bird's beak hits the tree at a rate of 13 miles per hour, which would be the same as if you and I took off running and ran at full speed smack dab into the side of that tree. I wouldn't suggest you try that to see how the bird feels, but that is the equivalent. And you say, how does the bird do this? There is special cushioning in a specially designed brain capsule that protects the brain of the bird as he drills away minute after minute, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in a lifetime. Now, I ask you, how does that randomly develop? How does that accidentally happen? I mean, how many red cockaded woodpeckers had to hit the tree once, poop, bang, and they drop to the ground dead before the brain actually gets the idea that it needs to create some cushioning there? Or does this just reek of grand design of a creator who enables a bird to develop like this and live? Or consider the human hair. A strand appears so simple and yet on an equivalent basis is as strong as aluminum. There are 5 million hair follicles in the body. The scalp alone contains 100,000. Individually over a lifetime, each follicle will produce 26 feet of hair. Collectively over a lifetime, the scalp will produce nearly 500 miles of hair. Now granted, some scalps have taken a detour on that. But the average remains astounding. And believe it or not, your nails and your teeth come from the very same embryonic layers as do skin and hair. And while skin and hair remains flexible, the enamel on your teeth is the hardest substance in the human body. For all of the fascinating stuff about the human body, 75% of our bodies is nothing but water and fat. Out of such ordinary elements, I believe God has made an extraordinary you. No wonder the psalmist declared in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That's a glimpse, just a glimpse at the universe. So let's take another look. What does our own moral sensibility tell us about God? It's another way of looking at who we are. All right, if we eliminate a creator, if we take God out of the picture, if we suggest that he does not exist, then this is what you have left. We are nothing more than the arbitrary product of random chance. We are reduced to a collection of atomic particles that exist on a small planet in a vast solar system through which we are rapidly moving with no control, no direction, no purpose, and no destination. 
We came from nothing, we are headed nowhere, and we will be nothing when we become food for the worms six feet under. Now, if you've been struggling with self-esteem, do not write that down and hang on to that. But if you take God out of the picture, that's who we are. Apart from a creator who designed us with purpose, we have no true meaning in life. So if that's true, if there's no creator, then why do each of us have some internal standard of morality that points to objective moral truth from outside of us that we did not create? How is that possible? How is it that we have something called a moral conscience? There is no logical explanation for such if our existence is random. Now, many will argue, well, we get our moral conscience from, from the laws of our culture. Where did a culture develop a, a, a moral conscience? Where did, where did that start from? Because people are who make up a culture. Now, now, now I understand a certain truth to that. There is truth to, to that, that a, that a culture creates a moral standard. Uh, if, in, in many states, if you drive over 70 miles an hour on the interstate going through that state, you probably ought to feel a little guilty. But you can go to Montana and drive 80 miles an hour without any shame at all. You see, the, the, the laws of that particular state have determined the conscience. But, but our moral conscience goes so much deeper than that. Have you read this week or watched on the news this week about the Turpin family? The couple who have been accused of beating, shackling, and abusing their 13 children and maybe using starvation as a weapon to control them. Have you seen about that? The story is beyond the pale of comprehension. And I have yet to hear anybody regarding that story simply say this, oh, they're probably guilty of some U.S. law. I don't know. The moral outrage at such behavior is overwhelming. What's the source of that outrage? After all, Louise Turpin, the mother, according to the news, was perplexed by the police's visit and their concerns. So why didn't people just conclude that this is simply the way the Turpins wanted to raise their kids? And hey, who are we to step in and say, this is not so? But there is something inherent within us to rebel at such immoral and egregious behavior. I can't hardly stand to read the articles or listen to what the news is. It is so heartbreaking. I've heard the same from unbelievers. I dare say that Richard Dawkins would be repulsed by such atrocities. And do we not feel the same revulsion at the cruelty of ISIS today? Or when we read about Adolf Hitler's The Final Solution, where he sought to exterminate the entire Jewish populace? And you say, well, that was the Nazi culture. Well, it may have been the Nazi culture, not the German culture. The Nazi culture may have embraced the idea, but the world found it despicable and rightly so. There is right and wrong. Where did that come from if not from a just and loving creator? You may find someone who says, I don't believe there is a right or wrong. Let me suggest you just try cheating that person once and they will squeal like a stuck pig about that's not right, that's not fair. You see, everybody's... Everybody has a sense of right and wrong when it comes to how we are treated personally, right? Where does that moral indignation come from if we are nothing but a collection of random atoms? If we didn't invent this objective sense of right and wrong, if it transcends the realms of culture and politics, if it is something that we cannot escape, 
then what is its source? Could it be? Could it be a moral lawgiver actually knit those moral standards into the fabric of every human being? We've taken a glance at the universe. We've taken a glance at this moral dilemma. Let me just throw out one more real quick thought. Changed lives. In the course of my ministry years, I have seen marriages saved, addicts transformed, lives turned around 180 degrees because of the power of God through Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps there have been families brought back together because they all became atheists at the same time. Or perhaps an addict has been transformed by denying God's existence. But I'm not really aware of those testimonies. They may be out there. I've just not read them. I can tell you this. There is something. There is something about acknowledging the existence of God that is life transforming. As a matter of fact, folks, I will tell you this. If all I had was what I've seen through the years of changed lives, people turned around. If that's all I had, if that's the only evidence I had, it would be enough to convince me that God exists. Can I guarantee that God actually exists? Well, of course not. I, I cannot guarantee that. But for me, he is the best explanation for what I see and experience all around me, all above me, and inside of me. I hope that you'll dig deeper so that you'll be able to give an answer to those who ask why you believe. And if you don't believe, I hope this will motivate you to dig for the answers that, well, for me, impact an eternity.
Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.